Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to run, but how to win. I'm Joe Fold. And I'm Martin Diego Garcia, and you can find us at CMPWRKSHP on Twitter or at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of How to Win a Campaign. On the last episode, we spoke with Mark Putnam about great campaign advertising. So if you haven't listened yet, make sure to go check it out. Definitely. It was a masterclass for me, for sure. And we have another great episode for you today. We're going to be discussing what do you do after you win and specifically talking about the shift from campaign to legislative priorities and turning that campaign rhetoric into actual reality. We'll also be talking about what goes into constituent outreach and legislative accomplishments. Well, you know, Martine, I think this is a really important discussion because when people are running a campaign, they're running to win, but they might not be focused on the transition to running the campaign and actually serving in the position. Absolutely. I think campaigns take a lot of work, and I think it's easy to get wrapped up in the campaign and just trying to win and sometimes forgetting that the campaign is the interview and not the actual job. And so it's really good that folks include this in their process in, in the beginning of the campaign so that they remember we are interviewing for the job we actually have to do. But Joe, what do you think some of the priorities that these newly elected officials need to be thinking about after they are successful with their campaigns? Well, Martine, there are a few things you really want to think about while you're running for office and after you've been elected. One is that the campaign itself can be a roadmap for legislative accomplishments. Representative Danica Rome, who we interview in this podcast, coming up next, awesome interview, really great, did a fantastic job of foreshadowing what they wanted to do with legislation while they were running for office. They talked about fixing Route 28 as the centerpiece of their campaign. Talked about it all the time, thought it was really important. Use that as a way to contrast with their opponent who was not focused on the bread and butter issues, but was focused on social issues only. Danica would bring it back to real world change and real betterment for the people of her district that they wanted to make. So that's it. Think about those issues as you're running, make them the centerpiece of your campaign. Also, listen to your community. As you are running, we have had many elected officials and many candidates who, as they knock on doors, hear and learn of issues going on in the community that they might not have known about before. And they're like, oh, that is important. That is something we can work on. That is what we can change. So using the door knocking process and the campaign process as a listening tour is also important. And Martine, as you said before, the goal is to serve, not to campaign. The goal is what are you going to do with the office once you get there? Not just go out and like knock on doors and that's it. You want to take that information from the community and make real change once you get into the legislature. Absolutely. And I think the other things I'll add is you want to make sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people once you become an elected official. And those folks may be your campaign folks, and they may not be your campaign folks. You want to make sure that you have staff that is going to understand and support the agenda that you are trying to push while in elective office to really help you fulfill on those campaign promises you made to voters and to your constituents. Because through those promises and through acting on those promises, 
that is how you're going to build trust and a good reputation uh, with your constituents. And you can see how important that is with the continued amount of emphasis that is usually placed on like the first hundred days a new president gets elected. People want to see the return on their investment and the vote that they cast for those particular folks. I think the last thing I'll say is you also want to make sure that you are winning with grace. Regardless of how much you contrasted with your opponent, you also want to thank them because we live in a democracy and we want to make sure that we're pursuing the best outcome for everybody. And thanking your opponent shows that you are winning with grace and that you are inviting those folks who even didn't vote for you into your coalition because ultimately you are serving them as well. You want to finish the race on friendly terms whenever possible. What we have found these days is in local elections where you have instant runoff voting, people are putting that into the process where you have to be nicer to your opponent. That's a good thing. And again, what we have found, we do a lot of work in primary and nonpartisan races, and today's opponent is tomorrow's coalition partner. So you have to figure that out. The other thing that I'll say is I think we might all be a little bit better if it was like things were in like other countries like Great Britain, where you have to stand on a stage next to your opponent to accept that you've won. That might be a positive thing that we try and do here. Don't know that that's going to happen anytime soon. But we want to figure out how can we make these communities better than we found it, not worse. And that is important. Absolutely. It's like looking at a Little League game when we make the opposing teams high five each other after the game. So it's also important for elected officials to stay engaged with their constituents and to re-engage their coalitions now that they're elective because the roles that they're going to be playing are going to be different. And so... Whether you're sending out email blasts or newsletters to your constituents to keep them up to date on what is happening in the district, what you were doing in the office, you may want to do a little bit more than that. And whether that looks like having a dedicated constituent services person in your office so that you are being responsive and timely to requests from your constituents, or does it mean that you're actually going out and meeting them where they are by hosting a town hall or visiting them in the classroom? We work with one of our clients who is a representative, Luke Klippinger, who does year-round door knocking and goes to his constituents to have those conversations, to keep an ear to the ground of what is that most concern for them so that he is taking that knowledge into his elective office and serving them to the best of his ability. So it's really, really important that you are putting the time and the effort, the resources and the energy into this constituent communication and outreach because ultimately you're going to be up for election again and you're going to need them on your side. But Joe, once a candidate wins a race, especially if it's their first time, what goes into securing a legislative accomplishment and and making good on those promises that they made on the campaign trail? Well, first, know what you want to get done, right? That to me is really important. From the beginning, have an understanding. If you get in there, one of the classic questions when I do training of candidates is I play reporter and I ask people, if you could pass any piece of legislation on day one, what would it be? It's a classic question. Know what that is. Also understand that you're going to have to work with other lawmakers to get that done. It's not going to be you alone that's going to get it done. You're going to have to figure out a coalition of lawmakers, of other constituent groups that are going to allow you to pass the legislation that you want. There is a big difference between a legislative body and executive body. Most folks who are running for office are running for legislative bodies. If you're running for an executive office, you might be able to do that without legislative approval. Often you still need legislative approval. So you really want to think about that. 
but you also have to understand what are the issues that are most important to your constituents. There's a lot of issues out there. There's a lot of things that you could work on. There's a lot of ways that you could spend your time. You need to prioritize what is most important and what are the immediate needs that you think you could make change on and really work to get that done. It is important and often a mistake that legislators make is they don't prioritize. Understanding what you want, how you want to get it done, when you can get it done, those are all choices you have to make. Absolutely. And really being realistic about the chances for success. Taking on 10 priority issues in your first term is likely going to set yourself up to fail. And as a newly elected official, you really want to be able to point to some wins, whether your term is two years, four years, six years, that next time you come up for election, you want to be able to say, here are the things that I was able to accomplish. And so focusing on those two to three priority pieces are going to really help you do that. And someone who has done that very successfully is our interviewee for this episode, Representative Danica Rome from Virginia. She made a really smooth transition from candidate to legislator and is here to talk to us about it. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this short break. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I want to introduce you to this week's guest, Danica Rome. In 2017, Danica was elected and became the first openly transgender legislator in the United States. She serves in the Virginia House of Delegates. Prior to her entry into politics, she worked as a reporter and news editor at the Montgomery County Sentinel. Danica Rome, thank you so much for joining us. Joe, thank you so much for the invitation. It's wonderful to join you. So this episode is specifically about what happens after you win. But the first thing I want to ask, because I always like to ask folks who run for office this question, did you have reservations about running for office when you first were considering it? Yes. <laughs> I assume you want to know what those reservations are. <laughs> yeah, I think I would. <laughs> so when I was first asked to run for office in an email from the 2015 Democratic nominee for the 13th district, I laughed. I, it was August 4th, 2016. I got an email and I went, huh! and I just did not respond to it. I never wrote back. So then the next day, August 5th, 2016, I got a phone call from State Delegate Rep Sullivan, who is the recruiting chairman for the House Democratic Caucus. And he said, hey, you know, have you considered running? You'd be really good. And so I said, all right, well, let's talk about it. Because I had spent nine years, two months and two weeks, you know, as the lead reporter of the Gainesville Times, Prince William Times and Prince William County, you know, covering my lifelong home community. And during that time, I had also worked two full-time jobs for four out of five years at one point when I was also writing for the hotline from 2009 to 2013. But, you know, in 2015, I left my job at the Gainesville Times to take over as news editor of the Montgomery County Sentinel over Maryland, which is just over the bridge from Northern Virginia. And then August of 2016, and I'm not making much money at all. I'm once again working two jobs, but this time I'm working for $15 an hour for 30 hours a week, no benefit for my newspaper job. And for $5 an hour plus tip, as a delivery driver for a place called Afking Bob House over in Arlington. And I was driving a 92 Dodge Shadow. So I was driving a 92 Dodge that had more rust and paint. Its color was primer blue, as in primer and blue. And it was worth $324. I had bought it for $700. This is the top of the market in 2012. <laughs> it's a 20-year-old car. What I was kind of thinking about at the time 
was I have no money. I am absolutely dead broke. And I'm trying to just figure out how I'm going to afford stuff in general. And my delivery job, I had lost more money than I made because of car repairs, for example. And when the call came in, I was in a bit of a rut. I had been a reporter for more than 10 years. And I think I was at that point looking at burnout a little bit. And I was doing my work. By that point in my career, I wasn't as enthused about what I was doing as I was before. And I think that was showing in not necessarily, it's not like, you know, I was doing a bad job reporting. It's just, could I have gone above and beyond what I was doing at that point? The answer is yes, I absolutely could have. And I was, you know, well into my transition by this point, you know, I had been on HRT for about, well, since December, 2013 in any event. So more than a year and a half at that point, when you don't have any money, when you're dead broke, you're 32 years old and you're just like, what am I going to do? You know, yeah, I have my reservations for sure. And part of it was I had spent my entire adult life as a reporter at that point. I had been training to become a reporter from the time I was 17 years old when I got into college in 2002, earning my journalism degree. And I was a reporter afterward. And so when you're a reporter, you're a disinterested, neutral third party observer, as opposed to being a political activist, which is inherently what you are when you're a candidate for office. So going away from neutrality, that in and of itself was going to be a thing that I was going to have to wrap my mind around because that's not who I had trained myself to be. But it had gotten to a point, though, where earlier that year, I had driven down to Richmond four times to fight nine anti-LGBTQ bills, including two for my predecessor. And we were also right then about a month away from starting our work in front of the Prince William County School Board to get them to include sexual orientation, gender identity, their non-discrimination measure. So all that said, I was getting engaged. And when I was asked if I were to run, what would I run on? I was like, oh, well, that's easy. I would run on Fixing Route 28 because, you know, my predecessors had by that point, he had been elected 13 times and he still hadn't done anything to get it done. So, you know, I was just like, you know, if you're more concerned about where I go to the bathroom than how your constituents get to work, that means you're doing your job wrong. But I said, look, I want to get through the rest of the election because 2016, even though we all thought Hillary was going to win at the time, you know, I had a newsroom to help run, you know, I was, you know, middle management, but had to get through that election first. And then the other thing that was completely true at the time is before I commit, I need to get trained to run for office. And I knew immediately, if I'm going to do this, I need to go through the Victory Institute's campaign, campaign training program. And that's not something I'm just saying to be facetious, just because our dear friend Joe Fold happens to be on this podcast. <laughs> that was a literal thought of mine. And I had known about it because when I was reporting for the hotline covering federal campaigns and state campaigns for three and a half years, I had come across the Victory Fund and you know Victory Institute. And so I knew it existed. So I applied to join. I couldn't believe they accepted me. I was just like, hey, I'm just this local weekly news reporter. It, it, you're talking to people who were going to these Ivy League schools and they had like this insane government experience, all this other stuff. And I'm like, I cover high school girls gymnastics one day and then I covered execution another day. I just do a lot of things. So yeah, I had my reservations, no doubt. When you're broke and you're like, if I do this, I'll lose my newspaper job. My other job's not paying a damn thing to begin with. So 
what am I going to do? But I decided that running for office should not be the sole domain of the rich and powerful. It's for us, too. It's for people who drive a 92 Dodge. And now, by the way, I've upgraded to a 98 Honda. That's right. My $2,500 Honda Accord. All right. I got lots of questions. So the yeah. first is, is that, I mean, you did a lot of things before you ran for office. We talked about delivery driver. We talked about being a reporter, being an editor. We did not talk about being in a rock band, but I want to get there, too. Metal band. Metal band specifically. <laughs> but I mean, all those experiences, like now in hindsight, those skills you had in doing, frankly, all of those things, how did that prepare you to be a better elected official candidate oh, and then elected official? Oh, yeah. So one of the things that people don't realize is that when you spend 12 years fronting heavy metal bands, there is absolutely relevant experience that you develop from that that goes into a campaign number one you got to learn how to command an audience number two word of mouth matters you can have all the great advertisements and everything else in the world if people aren't talking about your band they ain't going to come up to see your band and at the same time in politics here's a great example great 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 example from being in a local slash regional band right and one time international touring band too we, we get to scotland and northern ireland in 2012 but when we would play shows here in the D.C. area, we would very often have to sell tickets, you know, to encourage people to come out to, to our shows. The thing is, you can only ask the same person to buy tickets to go see your band so many times before, number one, they're not going to. And number two, you burn them out because you don't have anything new that you're offering them either. And so... I took that lesson in terms of having fundraisers, in terms of asking people for money for your campaign. Same thing. If you keep asking those same people over and over and over again, you're going to tap them out. And then you realize, just like in heavy metal world, where all the other local bands are asking the same group of local fans to go to their shows, you're competing with them. The same thing happens when you're running for office. You're competing for those local donors. That means you have to do something that's fundamentally different. You have to look outside the box. Yes, that group of main core supporters is important, and you should be as much of a part of that community as anything. At the same time, you've got to learn how to reach out to other people, get other people to see your banner, get other people to invest in your campaign. Same exact thing. And then the other thing is, in heavy metal world, we flyer. We go out, we put stuff up, and we advertise old school, you know, being on the ground. Just because you have a Facebook event and people click that they are interested does not mean they are going to see your show, and it does not mean they're going to come to your event. You have to understand that without getting that word commitment over the phone or in person, that person is not going to feel locked down whatsoever. And by the way, the other thing is you'll have a flight rate. Even people tell you they'll go, they don't always show up. Same when you're doing volunteer recruitment, same exact thing. So you have to stay engaged. And here's one of the other things from being in a band that you uh, also find about being in a campaign. You cannot be aloof. Absolutely, you cannot separate yourself from the people who support your band. You cannot separate yourself from the people who are going to support you as a candidate. You need to be accessible. You need to talk with them. You need to, when they write to you on social media, interact with them. Write back. You don't have to sit there being like, oh, all my minions are so glad of the job I'm doing. Oh, great. I will give him the queen's way, but all will be fine in the world. 
no, no, be a person, talk to them, say thank you and stuff, you know? <laughs> it's not that hard of a concept, but it's something that's really driven into you over 12 years of playing 150 some metal shows. You learn it, you learn how to do it. And then, by the way, when you're on stage, when it's actually time to perform, you're done selling tickets, or just like you're fundraising, you're done selling, but now it's the main event. You gotta give them a show or they ain't coming back to see you. You better put on a good show and have something good to say. I was a vocalist, right? So I had to make sure that I was super engaging on stage, giving everything that I had and being accessible before the show, being accessible after the show. Back in my drinking days, which is AKA my twenties, drinking with the fans and you know, friends as much as anyone else and doing all that sort of stuff. And as a candidate and politician now in my 30s, it's just about being available before, being available afterward, hanging out, just first person get there, last person leave, that, that sort of style. You adopt that ethos, you'll be successful with your band, and you'll be successful as a candidate. We've talked a lot about this with other guests on the podcast, and I think one of the things I'd like to get your opinion on is empathy, I think is the word. Whether you're like a reporter, you're being empathetic to the audience and the people in the community that you're reporting and connecting with, whether from the stage you're connecting with that audience, and then as an elected official, showing that connection is so important. I guess my question, a transition to being an elected official and talking about that, I promise you will nerd out on music at the end of this podcast, so stay tuned. But my question on sort of empathy and being an elected official is, especially these days, politics is so polarizing. We you walk into a room and I think sometimes whether we're operatives, whether we're candidates, whether we're elected officials feel like there's people who are with us and against us immediately. And I guess my question is, how do you break those boundaries apart? Talk a little bit about how you use empathy to do that. So one of the things I think about with that is I got a Republican constituent of mine in Signal Hill Precinct who 2019 and knocked on his door, asked him if he wanted a yard sign. He said, absolutely. And this is a guy who's a former cop, by the way. And one of the things that he told me, Derek, I don't give a damn about your gender. Fix my commute. <laughs> Here's one of the things that you find especially in state and local politics, the closer you get to the people in terms of politics, the further away from the federal government you, you get more or less, the more you start seeing that breakdown of inherent partisanship because things start getting local, right? You start getting to deal with your community. And if you can go up and just talk to someone in person, I swear to God, you have no idea just how many times I will hear, you know, Danica, I don't always agree with you, but you came to my house this week. Here's a great example. Last week, I was knocking doors. Last week, I didn't hang market. Guy told me that the number one issue that we're dealing with is anarchy. Okay? This is not sound like someone who's going to be my core voter, all right, by any stretch of the imagination. At the end of the conversation, he goes, the fact that you came here to talk to me, that really says something about you. And now... I don't know if this person will vote for me and I don't know if this person's going to move out of the country as they said they may or may not do. But the fact of the matter is we had that conversation and we have to remember just by showing up, by being willing to engage and being respectful and just talking to a person, not trying to necessarily convince them of your side, but just to convince them that you personally as a candidate can do a good job and that you genuinely care that you have empathy for what they're going through or 
when you're in office that you're doing a good job and you'll continue doing a good job. And one of the things that I talk about is whether I'm in front of a Democratic audience or mixed audience, whatever it is, the way I put it is, look, the governor signed 23 of my bills into law during my first two terms in office, all of which passed with bipartisan support. And that doesn't mean that I just have super easy little bills. No, when I've got a couple of Republicans voting for my bill for trans health care, that takes some work. That's the sort of thing where I can always go back and I go, you know what? I was raised with a Republican ma and a Republican sister. My ma last voted for a Democrat for president in 1976 and quote, and that was a mistake. Even with her, I could find three areas of common ground. Number one, you work 40 hours a week. You should be able to afford to take care of yourself. Number two, Scottish independence. No one ever sees that one coming. And number three is ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. Some things actually go beyond party lines. And I like to really try to just meet people where they are. I don't try to come across to them, once again, using the aloof thing, I don't come across to them as detached. I talk about our community, I talk about our roads, I talk about schools, talk about just whatever is super local to the area. And, you know, when I'm telling people that we've passed eight of my bills to feed hungry kids, that's not a Republican or Democratic issue, it's a feeding kids issue, you know? And if you're not willing to spend tax dollars on feeding children, <laughs> like, then there's a 100% chance you're never going to vote for a Democrat, okay? That's just how it is. So talk about the process of getting those bills passed into law. Talk about some of the back and forth you had to deal with to get that done. Give us a little bit of that detail of how oh, yeah. so that came my, about, especially that volume of bills you were able to get passed. Yes. Yeah, so my first year in office, the Republicans had me on the kill list. And so I went over. They killed all, all my bills my first year. All my bills, all my resolutions, other than like commending resolutions and stuff. It got so bad. I had my constituents crying in my arms four bills in a row at one point. Six of my bills went down in either one or two days span. And my constituents were driving hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes, two hours to get down to Richmond in order to testify for these bills. And one of them, it was a non-binding resolution requesting that anyone who works in the school building be trained to identify suicidal ideation in students. That's all. No cost, completely optional, constituent service request because one of my constituents who outlived her son, it was a really important issue for her. Bam, killed it, party line. And they did it right in front of her as she was sitting across the table from them. It was brutal, absolutely brutal seeing something like that go down. And you go, you realize at that point that they're not willing to work with you on your bill. They're not willing to work in good faith on your bill. That means that you're going to have to change the dynamic at that point because they've been given marching orders to kill your stuff. Now you realize, I, I got asked by a reporter my first year, are they killing your bills because you're trans? I was like, no, they're killing my bills because I'm a freshman Democrat from a swing seat. <laughs> they want their seat back. They're happy that I took out who I did because he annoyed them as much as he annoyed the Democrats. But at the same time, they don't want me around for more than a term. <laughs> so what I did in the off season that started to really make a difference when the Republicans still had a 51-49 majority before we won it back in 2019. What's up? But that's a different story. I drove down to Virginia Beach, more than three hours away from here, so I can meet with two Republican delegates separately at two different meetings during the day. And then I met with a third Republican delegate over in her area at night, over at her job. And 
I was meeting with them to talk about legislation. Well, what I decided to do was instead of just saying, hey, my bills were on the kill list and that means you were mean to me. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep in mind what it was that they actually said in subcommittee. And I am going to give them the presumption that they really meant what they said about my bills and that I want to work with them on exactly what they were talking about. And so I drove down there and one of those Republicans met him in his office. He goes, no one has ever driven as far as you have to come meet with me in my office. In fact, I don't remember any delegates meeting with me in my office, you know, to talk about legislation, let alone Democratic ones. You do. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, like, let's talk about that. That was my shield law to protect reporters from being jailed for protecting the identity of confidential source. Next thing I knew, after we worked that out, we got a one sentence addition to that bill, the upcoming session he voted for in subcommittee and he co-patroned it. And he was the biggest supporter in that subcommittee in terms of putting a defense on that bill. It still died on a tied vote in my second year, but I was making progress compared to it in the first year, right? It was just one more step. Another bill, this one actually passed. I had introduced my omnibus school meals bill my first year. Lots of good stuff in it. Well, the Republicans killed it on a party line vote. One of those Republicans on that committee, I met up with him in Virginia Beach and we started talking about what can we do to feed kids? What can we do to actually get some done? And what we realized was that every school district in Virginia, all 133 school districts, all of them have an IT department. All of them have websites, even the super rural areas that don't have broadband, even they have IT, even they have those websites. And we were noticing that the forms that people use to apply for free and reduced meals were still paper copies that either weren't making it home, weren't getting back to school, or had problems by the time they got back to school or weren't being verified in times. So there were just a lot of problems that were coming with the paper copy. So we put together a bill and it was my bill and he was the chief co-patron of it to make sure that every school district in the state had to have an online, easy to find application to apply for free and reduced meals. And we used existing precedent from some of the school districts that had done it right. And we explained this will be at no additional cost. Here's the code, by the way, from the federal government that you can use to put it on there. Good IT department will take it five minutes to get this online. So we did that. And that was one of my first three bills we actually got passed. Once we got in the majority, I passed another 20 bills. So that's pretty cool. But long story short of it is I went out of my way to talk to these people one-on-one -on -one individually, earn their commitments. And then this is the most important thing. Be good on your word. Do not break your word when you are a legislator. Your word means everything with that. Because if you burn someone one time, everyone will remember it. So Danica, talk a little bit about how you turned campaign ideas and rhetoric into actual legislative accomplishments. So the first thing that comes to mind with that is I never had to change my message from the primary to the general. Even though I was running it as a swing seat, right? never had to change my message because when you run a hyper-local campaign from the start, some of the other Democrats who were running for the seat, they were campaigning on guns and abortion from the start when I was campaigning on fixing Route 28 and expanding Medicaid and stuff. That was just the easiest thing for me to keep talking about what I was talking about. And so once I actually earned election that fall, it's like, all right, well, the stuff that I've spent the last 10 months and four days talking about, let's do something. The next day, I made five phone calls to local officials and agency people, whatever, about fixing 28. And that led to my first bill that I put in, or the first one of my first resolutions that I put in, I should say, called for a study for innovative intersection designs along the 28 corridor between Manassas Park and Yorkshire. 
And even when the Republicans, again, killed that thing on the party line vote, the next year we got the administration to just do it. And so working with them, I decided that it's like, look, all these things that I campaign on, these are what the people voted for. So these are what my bills will be. And then what my constituents asked me to put in, that's what I'll do. And to this day, 23 bills passed in law, all eight of my school meals bills, those came from here in the community. Those came from working with local advocates and stuff. And my shield law, I had put that on my website. You know, I was going to do that. Everyone knew as a reporter, there's no surprise that I was going to have that. Trans healthcare bill. I got trans constituents. I'm trans. Surprise. I haven't put in legislation where people are like, oh my God, I'm just shocked Dana Carome did this. I was just like, no, I'm just doing what I said I would do in my campaign. It's, it's real easy. If you have good ideas, you make good songs. If you have good ideas, you make good bills. You know, it's not that hard. But talk a little bit about, I mean, you have a, you have a pretty broad message, pretty broad constituency, right? How do you make sure you're one on a day-to-day basis doing that outreach, continuing? I mean, you're super busy. You've got lots of stuff going on. How do you, one, get that message out once you're elected that you actually did these things, that you actually connect, did what you said you were going to do? How does that happen? Well, number one, on my day-to-day, every single day, I keep my social media active. I keep my Facebook and my Twitter pages active every single day. And I am not shy about telling anyone that I got my bills passed. The difference, though, is that I don't want to come across as like, oh, look how great I am. So I talk about how grateful I am to have worked with people who helped me get these bills passed. And you'll see the word grateful on my pages over and over and over again because it expresses humility and it's genuine. That's the first thing. Another thing, just because you get in office doesn't mean stop knocking doors. You keep knocking doors. That's the other one. You keep knocking doors. You have local town hall meetings. You make yourself available. Like just this morning, you know, six days a week, I drive into Manassas Park and go check my campaign office mail in the uh, over the post office. Just being out there, just, hey, if anyone wants to talk to me while I'm there, great. You know, and then I just go around the community. I go to the library, just even go to Johnny Coffee House for an hour. Just make myself available. If anyone wants to talk to me, I'm here. Don't be aloof. Talk to people. And then the other part of this is you've got to do actual outreach. It's do not think that just because 12,077 people voted for you one year and 12,066 people voted for you another year, that they will all remember your name. They won't. And do not think that just because you've got a good advertising budget that you're going to win a campaign. No, you need to actually go out and engage people. And you know what I say at the doors when I knock? Hi, my name's Dana Carone. I'm your state delegate representing down Richmond. Hey, how you doing? Hey, well, you know, I'm running for re-election this November 2nd. And so I got a lot of issues that I'm running on. And then depending on the community, I highlight an issue, Route 28 in the East, Dominion Power Lines in the West, whatever it is. I talk about the work that I've done on those. But I want to hear from you. What issues are most important to you? And being a reporter turned legislator, I've got my clipboard, I've got my pen, I've got my paper. I don't use minivan. I don't use any of the digital stuff for that. I have my team enter my data for me on that. I want my constituents to see me taking notes right in front of them. And then you know what I do with those notes? I follow up with them later. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. I'm going to make sure that this Haymarket Town Council member is going to follow up with you to talk about that broken pipe in your backyard. That's how you do it. It's not hard. This public service in general is just being happy to talk to people. It's not that hard. And my bet is a lot of the work that you do emanates from your constituents, that they tell you things and then you act on it. I have 83,000 bosses. That's the way I see it. And they don't always agree with each other. That's fine. And some people are going to have things that 
contradict my personal values and things that are against the platform that the people elected. When that happens, I'm like, okay, well, I respect your point of view, but thank you for bringing it. I'm not going to introduce a bill that conflicts with my values. At the same time, maybe we can find common ground. If you're opposed to abortion rights, and I'm like, okay, well, then maybe we can figure out what are ways that we can reduce unwanted pregnancies to begin with. A big part of that is economics. Raise the minimum wage, make it more affordable for someone to actually be able to go through a pregnancy in the first place. There's little things like that or providing neonatal care. There's always something that I, the way I look at it is there's always some way that I can try to find common ground with someone. And if at the end of the day, if we can't, if they're just gonna be that, you say, well, you know what? Agree or disagree, I'm grateful to serve you nonetheless. And I thank you for your time today. Is there anything that, whether it was in the campaigns you ran or as an elected official, that you've looked back on and say, hey, I wish I did this differently, or here's something that I changed over time in office? Yes, absolutely. My first campaign, I put two campaign finance restrictions on myself from the get-go, one of which I still abide to to this day, the other which was completely impractical in Virginia. And I found that out the hard way because I was super idealistic and... I said, number one, I wasn't going to take money from for-profit corporations or PACs or lobbies or the trade associations, which to this day, I still don't. The only corporate money I've ever accepted was in my primary in 17 when I took $70 from Guar Bar. And if I'm in the pocket of Big Guar, well, then so be it. Yes, that band from Antarctica that's make their headquarters in Richmond. That's right. Yeah, you, you got me. I'm in the pocket of Big Guar. But uh, aside from that, and I had said I'm proud of that one, by the way. Aside from my favorite dive bar in Richmond, the other one was I put a $500 cap on, on my campaign. The other Democrats did not. The incumbent did not. And so I had the sixth most number of donors in the state in the first quarter of 2017 during my first campaign. And I was being outraised by more than $45,000 by two different candidates because they had far fewer donations than I did, but they were taking much larger donations. I couldn't make payroll if I had kept that going because Unfortunately, in Virginia, you have to recognize that some states like Colorado and Delaware have very strict campaign finance limits. Virginia has no campaign finance limits. We are a disclose-only state. Sky's the limit. Whatever works for you, works for you. And if you're going to play by that rule and no one else's, you better have a huge army. And at the time, in that primary, at that point, I didn't. And so I was like, all right, I told the Washington Post that year I ran into a brick wall of political reality. So I was like, all right, well, I'll do away with that one. But, you know, so with the the limit, but I'm still not going to take corporate money because I don't think anyone who should be able to make a dollar for my vote, you know, uh, for a bill that I cast should be able to give me money. And especially not public service corporations, which are regulated monopolies because they don't have competition. Their competition is the state legislature. So that's one that I would definitely have done over again. And and believe me, I've been dinged for it over and over again, and rightfully so. I got attacked in uh, the 17 general and the 19 general for it. I I just suck it up. I'm like, yep, I made a mistake. I was wrong. Well, all right, Danica. So I promised that I would nerd out on music at the end. So I got to ask, favorite album of all time? Okay, favorite album all time for a mainstream audience would be uh, Aunt Justice for All, Metallica's 1988 classic that includes the song One. So yeah, that's definitely favorite all time. For the underground, for those of y'all who like music that's a little less mainstream, I'll give you two. I want to give okay. you Wages of Sin by Arch Enemy, which came out internationally in 2001, but in America it came out in 2002. That is classic Swedish melodic death metal with incredible harsh female vocals. 
And the other one that changed my life was Comalized by the Italian band Lacuna Coil. Male and female fronted band that is just, they absolutely changed my perspective on music. So yeah, those are my three favorites, I, I guess you could say. There will be some uh, Spotify searching after this by me to listen to some of this. I will let you know how it goes. I recently rediscovered Slade, which I thought is pretty cool, which was one of the, I don't know if you've heard that, Danica, but it's sort of the inspiration of glam heavy metal. I'll share that link with you. We'll have a musical back and forth on this, but it is so great to chat with you. Last question. Do you have a book or a publication that you read that you think would be great for our audience of operatives and activists that you have read that was inspiring for you? No. <laughs> no, just no, music. No, 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 I, no for, for campaign and politics stuff, I still get hotline wake-up calls sent to me every day. Yeah, so I, I still go through my daily briefs. And in Virginia, we have VPAP, and they send out their morning news blast as well. You know, so they do their news aggregation. And that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a reporter. I read the news. I read newspapers. I still subscribe to physical copies of my newspapers. So that's the main thing. But to be honest with you, the thing that I read the most are, is the, the Outlander series and the Lord John series to go along with that, by the way. So that's my big read. That's why I spent. The last bit of advice I'm going to give to any candidate and to anyone in office. Please. Have a hobby away from politics. Have something else that you are interested in. Because if you are doing this 24-7, seven days a week, everything, it will burn you out. Have something else that you are also interested in to, just to keep everything fresh. If you do that, just like if you were a musician, just like that, have something else, then everything stays fresh and it stays exciting. So do that and it'll be good for you. I started doing stand-up comedy about three and a half years ago. Nice. And that has been a, a nice outlet for me. I would um, love to see that. That sounds excellent. I would yeah, like I, to do that in, in the future. I will let you know I have a uh, really nice bit that talks about my life as a political voiceover and what my day, my my actual day would be like. So we'll put that in the show notes and I'll invite you to my next show. Danica, first of all, I want to say thank you so much. No other guest has ever mentioned Swedish death metal. So you are the first and it was great chatting with you. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about Swedish Death Metal, Route 28, Medicaid expansion, feeding hungry kids. That's what we do. So take care to everyone. Thank you so much. And let's go on. If you're interested in finding out more about Danica Rome, you can check out her website at delegatedanicarome.com. You can also check out Danica Rome's Act Blue page at Danica for Delegate on the actblue.com site. Thanks so much. Hey, folks, welcome back. So that was an amazing interview with Representative Danica Rome. One of the things that jumps out to me, especially when I'm talking with a lot of these guests who've been on our podcast, elected officials specifically, is they are on their second or third career. Danica was a reporter. Danica was a touring musician headlining a metal band. By the way, the first time I've ever got to ask the question, how does being an elected official compare with being a headliner in a metal band? It was great. Again, I'm sure you've listened to the episode and you thought it was fantastic too, but that was a highlight for me. What I love is when candidates for office take those first and second careers and use that as part of the reason that they're running and the skills they got 
from those endeavors and put that into being an elected official. It makes them more real and more relevant. Absolutely. I mean, like, I also really appreciated the talk around like having a life and knowing that you did have a life prior to running. And Representative Room was able to be uh, her authentic self in running a campaign, which also then allows her to be her authentic self as a public official. And so we often get candidates who think that they need to be a cookie cutter politician while they're a candidate, which then sort of ties their hands a little bit when they want to be their authentic self as the elected official. So being your authentic self and having that life prior and during your campaign and your legislative service is really, really important. The other piece that I think was important was to do have real priorities. Make sure that you understand what is it that your constituents need what is of most top of mind for them? And how do you marry that with what you're passionate about and making sure that you're having a combination of, I'm working on priorities that are of top concern to my constituents. And I also have things that I am passionate about, which is why I run for public office. And so having those real priorities that are two to three and not 10 to 11 are really going to help you get some wins under your belt. Right. Getting things done matters. It matters to the people who have elected you, whether you decide to prioritize a specific piece of legislation, constituent service, or both, whatever it is, understand what your priorities are and really focus on that. You're not going to be able to do everything. The other thing is being a legislator these days, there are messaging bills and there are actual legislation that you can get passed. Know the difference. Know that you are probably going to be putting out both things, but understand what your priority is that is super important. And so, Joe, can you talk a little bit about what is a messaging bill and what is legislation that actually gets passed? A messaging bill might be a big omnibus bill around the social issue, right? Or a bill that has a bunch of issues within it, but you are carrying that bill, but the likelihood of the whole thing getting passed is small. There may be a negotiation where specific things get carved out and go into smaller bills. But again, there are going to be bills that your caucus pushes, which they can't get through, but there's a reason that they want to use the legislative process as a bully pulpit to talk about an inequity or a need. Um, and then there are legislative issues like funding for Route 28, which Again, you still need to have a coalition, you still need to have constituencies, but that specific funding may be more likely to get through. You are likely going to focus on both. Absolutely. And and the goal, right, is if you happen to be elected to a governing body where you're in the minority and you may not get any of your priority legislation passed, you're able to use these instances of the messaging bill to say, we stopped this really bad bill or we tried our hardest, but the other side said no. So that you're able to still point to getting stuff done and showing your constituents that you are actually doing that work in the legislative body. So we're going to be also adding some links to and uh, resources at organizations who do provide a support to elected officials when it comes to governing in the show description. So look out for those as well. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you have any questions or comments about what happens after you win, feel free to reach out to us on social media or email us the old-fashioned way. That's fun. Our information can be found in the podcast description, so keep in touch.
Yes, and be sure to review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out next week's episode where we're going to talk about the flip side of how do you win even if you lose with our guest, Judge Steve Kirkland. Until next time, this is Joe Fold. And Martin Diego Garcia breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Carrie Yanata, Gabriela Zwaffler, and Hope Ledford. Music by Mike Pinto. Sound editing by The Sound Sanagoma. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.